0: we dig in again to chapter 6 here in the book of Genesis, if you'd turn there please, Genesis 6, we'll pick up in verse 13, and uh, I want to once again remind you that you really only have two ways to look at the book of Genesis, it either says what it means, means what it says, was written by God, authored by someone who is capable to do anything at any time, anywhere in the universe, has the power to do it, the will to do it, the skill to do it the abilities to do it, or this is a fairy tale. And if it's a fairy tale, then you have to also question whether the figurative meaning of these things would actually be true or not as well. And so to avoid that, I challenge you and encourage you just to take Scripture at face value unless you have a reason to believe that God intends it to be figurative. We're talking tonight about a literal ark, A very large ship, one that is going to be used of God to spare a remnant of mankind and will be tonight, I believe, at least figuratively speaking, also a type of Christ. And so uh, as we pick up in verse 13, we'll take just a few verses tonight down to verse 16. uh, And the Ark of Noah... Probably this is up in the top ten things that are controversial in the Bible. Uh, it is one of those things that if you claim to believe that in fact uh, a man worked on a ostensibly a ship for 120 years, built it on dry land that had never seen rain, that was nowhere near a large body of water, uh, that people will look at you like you have the proverbial third eye in the middle of your forehead. Uh, very often people will claim that you're nonsensical, that you're foolish, that you believe in fairy tales and myths. And, and I hope tonight really is a kind of the beginning of a two-part study on this particular aspect of the flood, which is coming. But I think it also bears discussing that this is by no shake of the imagination more far-fetched than believing that the entire universe came into existence from nothing exploding and getting highly ordered. And so be careful about the ridicule that you accept without simply stating, are you sure? And I'll share a story with you from the late Dr. Henry Morris, whom I listened to on a radio program in 1992 defend this very passage uh, against a radio host who was an avowed atheist and he asked some pretty silly questions and I'll share them with you tonight so would you join me let's pray and we'll pick up in verse 13 here in Genesis chapter 6 Father thank you for the truth of your word and Lord we pray tonight that as we read and study that your Holy Spirit would be the interpreter of all things Lord, you'd take my opinions and pull them out of the mix, that you from heaven would instruct us as your people. Lord, we bless you for leaving us this record of how you saved mankind. Lord, in a time when the world was going the wrong direction, there was still a righteous remnant, and you have always saved the righteous remnant, and we thank you for that because we're a type of, Of that same remnant, Lord, those that have been saved by grace and through faith. And so in that righteousness that we have in Christ, we also will one day be saved from your wrath. And so God, please speak to us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 13 here in Genesis 6. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And I want you to pause for just a second and recognize what God is saying. God is saying that not only is mankind, in a large part and almost in its totality, irredeemable, in other words, God has made a determination that man has gone a direction that he cannot recover from, but man has also polluted the earth in such a way that he is going to destroy the earth with man. And that is a very important distinction. Because as you look at this, if God says that, then we would expect there to be evidence of a global cataclysm. And that evidence better be severe, and it should be worldwide because this is a worldwide flood. And we'll make the case for that over the next two Sunday nights. And he goes on to say in verse 14, Make yourself an ark. Of gopher wood. The moment you say this to someone who has a bent that there is no God and that this is a fairy tale, they immediately go down a whole bunch of, of roads of reasoning that you're, you're trying to tell me that someone with no nautical experience, someone with no construction experience that we're aware of, someone who has little ability to manufacture a ship is going to be able to do that by God telling them to make an ark, in essence a box of gopher wood, and make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And we're going to take this apart tonight so that you realize what God is actually saying here. He's being very descriptive in the original language in the Hebrew. And as he is very descriptive, he's saying several things to us. And I think that It'll become very easy to understand why God would say these things in this way. And this is how you shall make it. And before you get into all the, you know, well, how come he didn't say there's so many beams and there's a keel that looks like this, and you need to make sure that it's properly stressed for the weight of the lumber and all those things, you you can well imagine that uh, all of those details would be fairly meaningless, not only to those who heard these things, but also those who would read them coming after because they would have no way of understanding uh, the hydrodynamics of a large vessel like this because no one had ever built one. In fact, none like it would be built uh, for the better part of 4,500 years. And so this is a one-time ship. It will be the largest floating vessel that mankind would see until well after Uh, the Romans began to build ships that were roughly 350 feet long, uh, but this one's bigger than that. And so it is something that has never been seen by these people, nor would it be seen by another group of people for a very, very, very long time. This is how you should make it. The length of the ark should be 300 cubits. It's width 50 cubits, and it's height 30 cubits, and we'll dig into the measurements here in a minute. You shall make a window for the ark, and you shall finish it to a cubit from above. And so there is a very small window in the upper portions of the ark. And set a door of the ark in its side. That's an interesting fact. And you shall make it a second, lower, and a third deck. And so it's got three decks in it. And as we start to look at this, uh, we'll also look at some of the other things that are being done with ark research, and which has been going on in Mount Ararat in Turkey for a very long time. We'll look at that uh, in the future when we get to the actual landing of the ark. So hang on to that part. But Noah's ark's caused a lot of questions. Is it literal? Is it figurative? And I think tonight we, we will kind of get the picture that God intended us to understand. This is a literal boat, and it has a figurative meaning. So it is literally both. And very often, you're going to see that in Scripture. When God gives us a picture of something, there's a literal picture that he's describing, and there is a figurative way for us to understand it or interpret it. Proper hermeneutics, the, the proper interpretation of Scripture, very often implies that we're going to look for both of those things. We're going to see exactly what it was that God intended in the day and how it applies to us in the future. And so that will be very clear with this particular boat you look at this thing and and you kind of go, is that really a ship? And the answer is no. It wasn't intended to be a ship. It was intended to be a giant floating box. And it was very good at being a giant floating box. It had no rudder. It had no way to navigate. There was zero necessity for any of those things. So people often try and pick on this like, well, why would God build a ship that is so dysfunctional? Because God didn't build the ship that was dysfunctional. He built it very purposely for a singular function. And that was to save all of the animals on earth by their kind and to save eight human beings. Um, You do not need a ocean going ocean liner to do that. You need something that's going to be very stable in extremely stormy seas. You need something that will right itself should it be broadsided by a wave and you need something that is going to have a very large capacity to hold animals. You do not need uh, what we would call a modern ship. In fact, in 1609, a Dutch Mennonite named Peter Jansen actually built a one-third scale replica of the Ark. Uh, It was also not very ship-like, but at that time it could carry a third more cargo than any of the ships that were sailing on the seas anywhere in the world. And so the design by God, a box that was 300 cubits long and 50 cubits wide and 30 cubits high, was an extremely efficient way for Noah to build this thing that was really going to be something that was going to be salvation to them and, and not something they were going to try and take a Caribbean cruise on. And we're, this, is, this is not a luxury vessel. This is a vessel of salvation. Salvation. This is a vessel that is designed for exactly one purpose and keep that in mind as you begin to think about it. One of the things that comes into view very quickly is probably most of you if you have a, uh, if you have tools in your garage I'm guessing none of you have a ruler with cubits marked on it. Is that safe to assume? Anybody got a cubit ruler? I don't think so. And so we have to kind of discuss what were acceptable cubits during uh, the period of history that is Uh, around this and really actually quite a ways into the future but the Babylonians had a royal cubit um, that was about 19.8 inches the Egyptians had a longer cubit and a shorter cubit uh, one about 20 and a half and the other about 17 and a half or thereabouts and the Hebrews actually also had two cubits um, both of them differing by about three inches And, and so the standard measurement of a cubit was from the tip of one 's forefinger, your middle finger to the tip of your elbow, so it could be around eighteen inches and in some cases up to close to two feet. so a cubit has been generally understood to be eighteen inches for a very, very, very long time and So when you think about that, uh, this is going to make a, a ship that would be somewhere in the neighborhood of about 438 feet long, 72 feet high, and uh, 43 feet wide. So to put it into perspective, uh, it, it would go through this room lengthwise more than twice. It would be a little bit higher than the highest point in this room, and it would be a little bit wider than from the back wall of the stage to the pillars that sit out there. So this is a big box. Uh, probably some of you have uh, been following what Ken Ham has been doing in Kentucky, and he built the Ark Encounter. Uh, they went with the Babylonian cubit to construct that particular uh, replica of the Ark, and I will tell you straight up, uh, it's way too nice. Uh, they they did they did go with the larger the Hebrew larger cubit. And so if you travel there, this is what you're going to see. It's a very, very, very large boat. Yes, those are cars and trucks that are parked on the one end, so you can kind of get the scale of what this thing would look like. Now, I'm going to tell you, there were no curves on it in Noah's day. Uh, There was nothing that remotely resembled a keel as there is on this. Um, But other than that, it was pretty much a floating box without all the niceties on it. And so as you think about it, this was designed for a single purpose. Uh, it, it, if you look, you can see in the very right hand, almost in the corner, you can see a tanker truck down there to give you a little bit of the sense of scale. You'll also notice that in the description here, there was a small, what appears to be a parapet wall, which was highly likely also the formation of a cistern. So one of the things that you're going to have to have, is you're going to be floating around for a year, you're going to need an awful lot of drinking water. You're going to have a ton of animals on there and a whole bunch of human beings and it's going to be raining. So what better way to have water to drink than to collect rainwater? And so it is highly likely that the roof was covered over and it is highly likely that the edges of the roof drain down towards the keel, which surprisingly enough would give you what we would call in in modern shipbuilding a place for us to locate some ballast. That ballast would actually help keep the ship upright so that water would help displace some of the water that was inside of the ocean that it was floating in, which would cause it to be quite stable. And so their fresh water supply was also likely built in by this little tiny wall that's evidenced by the window uh, that's referred here. And so uh, it only had three decks on the inside. Each one of those decks uh, would be roughly 15 feet tall, Uh, We do not know the size of the rooms that were in it and interestingly enough in the Hebrew language the word that's translated room actually is exactly the same word for nest and so there were locations where you could put various types of animals. The one thing that is absolutely essential is the the volumetric capacity of this particular vessel and it is absolutely huge. And so if you look at it, Uh, And you put it in a comparison, most of you, we might even have some dock workers in here, some longshoremen, if you're in here, you'll know what I'm going to be saying next. Uh, If you take a railroad flat car and you put a couple of those 40-foot cargo containers on there, that's about the the length of a single railroad car is two of those. Uh, If you were to take and split this particular ship up, into those types of containers, you would end up with 522 railroad cattle cars inside of the ark. That is a whole bunch of space. And so when people start talking about, well, you know, it's not big enough, and all the animals on the face of the earth, we're going to throw in some additional details uh, next time. But what we do know about this particular uh, floating box is it would have been highly stable. It would have oriented itself to the oncoming waves uh, because something that is long and stable like this, the moment it begins struck by a wave, it will automatically orient itself to that, run parallel to it. And so God did a great design and he made it plenty big enough. And the reason that that is important is if you took Uh, and and put sheep-sized animals in there, you could squeeze about 125,000 of them in there. Uh, And and as there are no more than roughly living or extinct, 25,000 or so specific species, and again, make sure that you use the right words here, because remember, God created things after their own kind, right? He didn't make Labradors, German shepherds, wolves, dachshunds, and chihuahuas. He made a couple of types of dogs, and then through uh, what, the proce- what processes you would normally expect through genetic mutation, uh, recombination of DNA, and those types of things, you can end up with all kinds of different variation within its own kind, within its own species, but there have never been at any point in time if you look at the species variation, in other words the variation of species themselves, about 25,000 distinct species, and God's pretty smart so he's not going to have you take you know every single example of each species he's going to allow for those things to genetically uh, do what they do today which is you'd have all kinds of weird dogs I mean it's, it's crazy how many types of dogs there are now I mean there are labradoodles and doodle doodles and Doggy. you know there it's crazy I saw some little dog that looked like a little tiny bear. And I was like, what is that? And then somebody told me what it was. I'm like, there's no way in the world that those dogs ever got to know each other that way. But apparently they did, you know. God's very wise. He does not need all of our messing around with genetics in order to produce an awful lot of genetic diversity. And so a fairly small gene pool Adequ- adequately uh, altered over some time and you'll get lots of variation in hair length and skin color and horn length and nose length and all those kind of things uh, that still happens to this day. And, and strangely enough, I'll just share with you this, this story and this is actually a transcript from that. I uh, actually got this eventually from, uh, from Dr. Morris's son uh, but it goes like this. Dr. Henry Morris, for those of you who don't know, his, his seminal work was the Genesis record. Uh, it's probably the the greatest work that I know of on the Genesis flood. It's a massive volume. has been added to a number of times. But it goes through all the scientific uh, data that would be necessary to kind of prove these things. And he was being interviewed on a radio station in San Diego, the original... Uh, Creation Science Museum was down in CNT. We used to live not very far from there. Uh, And so Dr. Morris is being interviewed by this avowed atheist. And this is the way the interview started. Uh, Host said, so you're one of those idiots who believes the earth is only 6,000 years old. Tell me one thing. How did Noah get all those millions of dinosaurs aboard Noah's ark? Dr. Morris asked him, if he knew how many dinosaurs there actually were in the fossil record. He didn't know, but he said there were too many to get on the ark. Dr. Morris went on to explain, he says that if they were indeed on the ark at all, there are only about 600 species of dinosaurs in total in the entire fossil record. So he starts correcting some of his paleontology. He went on to say that a vast majority of those dinosaur species have been identified by fewer than 10 bones. So to put that in perspective, when you see these dioramas where there's multiple dinosaurs in them in a museum, or you see a replica of an Allosaurus or a Tyrannosaurus or a Stegosaur or something like that, when you're looking at that, you have to understand that very few full skeletons of those dinosaurs have ever been found. There's actually only 37 species of all the t- all totality of all dinosaurs that have ever been found complete. So there are very few representations of species of dinosaurs. So Dr. Morris is basically sharing this with him. He's saying, look, you need, if you're going to ask me, uh, begin with a question calling me an idiot, you, you might want to begin to think about the questions that you're going to ask somebody with two earned doctorates. Two earned doctorates, not honorary doctorates, earned doctorates. He went and finished the work to get them. So he explains that, and he says, so those kinds could have done all kinds of things. he said, on top of that, there are only 100 dinosaurs that were larger than a cow. A vast majority of them are smaller than sheep. So this is where it ties back into what we were just talking about. How many sheep can fit? 125,000. So if most of the animals prior to the flood were vegetarian and you only need one example from each species in order for them to you know to replicate a male and a female then you know he says eh, I don't know. So the guy goes on he says it's still ridiculous. He goes are you telling me that all the fish and the whales and the clams and everything were on the ark and Dr. Morris said no I don't know about you but I think Clams and fish are all pretty good in the water. (laughs) He says, and furthermore, the Bible says, so he starts quoting the Bible, and he says, the Bible says that the only thing in the ark were those which have the breath of life. And so the guy goes, so you're trying to tell me that the millions and billions and trillions of insects, he says, do you know anything about insect life? He says, they don't have lungs so they don't breathe, and they don't. Insects absorb oxygen through their exoskeleton, generally speaking. They have membranes on their body, and they actually absorb oxygen from the atmosphere. They don't breathe, so they don't have breath of life. So not one of the insects needed to be on the ark, though I'm sure there were some of them, because they had uh, animals on there, and I'm sure some of the insects were there. He says, so we don't even know how many of those that there were on the ark. He went on to say, he says, so it was restricted only to land animals and, and birds. And Dr. Morris said, yes, but only a handful of the bird species needed to be on the ark. He says, some of them could have been flying around, floating on rafts of material, and those types of things. And he, goes, he says, well, Dr. Morris asked him a question. He says, do you know how many there were? He says, no, I don't, but they couldn't fit. And Dr. Morris asked him another question. He says, do you actually even know the size of the ark? And he says, no, I, I don't, but it wasn't big enough. And Dr. Morris stopped and he says, I see the problem. He said, you're asking me questions about the size of something that you don't know the size. He says, it's an unknown number of animals couldn't fit into a boat of an unknown size, and that's a problem to you. And that's kind of the way people look at the Genesis record. They don't actually stop long enough to actually look at it and do a little bit of the math that's involved to figure out exactly how many animals could fit inside this thing, and then to understand how many actual species there are even today on the face of the earth. All we do is we run around, with well, there's trillions of, you know, different types of insects on the face of the earth. That's true. There are trillions of insects on the earth, but there are not trillions of types of insects on the earth. There, there are there are a number of species of insects that are all basically the same. You don't need, you know, every one of the 2,756 species of what we would call a fly. You know, you only need a couple of the flies in order for the flies to continue. And so the point is this. You kind of need to do your homework before you start mocking uh, the fact that there was a very large boat that was built by a guy with no boat-building experience, uh, because he wasn't building an ocean liner, he was building a box. And so, if you move on from where we're at currently, and you look at, we we know you can stick about 240 sheep or so inside of one stock car, so you could have gotten maybe 125,000 sheep on the Ark. And because there are only 25 distinct, 25,000 distinct species uh, ever at any point in time on the face of the earth that needed to be in the Ark, The bottom line is you would have only needed about 60% of the capacity of the ark to carry the number of animals that have ever existed on the face of the earth. Assuming that God is smart enough to know that he doesn't need to put adult elephants on the ship. He he doesn't have to stick the very largest of all of the kinds of, of any of the animals he's going to have on the other side of the flood. And on top of that, there in Genesis chapter, chapter 1, it reminds us that God creates all these things in their own kind. And so we know that by the time day 6 comes, these kinds of living creatures, the cattle, the domesticated animals, the creeping things, were all in existence. But they did not have the massive variation that we see today. Uh, if you travel to any place where they're raising cattle, you might find 20, 30 different types of cattle, but they're all cattle. Uh, If you look at an Angus next to a Brahma, next to a Holstein, uh, yes, they're going to look substantially different. They'll be different size, but they're all still of the exact same genus and species. So, you know, it's not that big a deal uh, to God to to do some of these things. It's just big to us because we have the perspective of the National Geographic Channel, uh, and that is it can't happen, which interestingly enough to me, uh, I will watch some of those programs and they're very fond of, you know, having programs about dragons and dinosaurs and could they be real? And they go on the basic premise that there might still be dragons on the face of the earth. And so they spend a whole show only to tell you we can't actually find one. But they're looking for one. So they're admitting that they're probably, they, they might well still be here. We believe that they might still, still be here, but we can't find one. So they're looking for something that they believe is here, but once somebody like me says, well, I believe it's here too, well, we don't believe in it anymore. Job chapter 40 and 41 brings up two large animals, and again, we'll look a little bit at these later when we get into the actual flood account. Behemoth and Leviathan, and and both of these Uh, are are very easily discernible as what might potentially be uh, some of the large sauropods or or the larger uh, dinosaur or dragon legends from around the world. When you look at the, the world's history, there are dragons in virtually every single culture that there is on the face of the earth. And it really doesn't matter which culture you talk about. European culture absolutely. Here Native American culture absolutely. There are flying lizards in almost every culture. These are absolute things, and as I showed you when we began this study, uh, some Peruvian burial stones, at least insofar as the Incans are concerned in Peru, uh, it is pretty likely that they must have at least seen some of the dinosaur species that uh, we find popular, like uh, Triceratops, uh, probably an Allosaurus, Uh, And so carved burial stones with images of those dinosaurs and including some of the Incan gods actually riding on the backs of them. So uh, we'll again look at those things at a future time. But Herodotus, Marco Polo, Alexander the Great, to name a few, uh, believed that there were in fact species of animals on the face of the earth uh, that we would call likely dinosaurs. Uh, that did exist that were extremely rare and you would expect them to be rare these things are huge Uh, they didn't play well with others they took large amounts of space you know it's it's always striking to me because people will say well you know it's just impossible and and yet when we go looking for snow leopards people can wander around for years and not see a single snow leopard Uh, and, and so Why would you expect that something is trying to hide from you that's very large that could be underwater would be easy to find? I don't know, but people somehow think about it. When you look at cave drawings, when you look at the dragon legends and those types of things, there's just too much evidence to believe that there weren't animals in existence that we do not have today that likely were uh, in existence then. And so this tabha, this ark, this floating box... Uh, was absolutely large enough, and it was absolutely uh, sufficient for the task at hand. It could have easily floated in this primeval sea that would have had a ton of sediment churned up in it, Uh, so it would have been highly buoyant, much more buoyant than normal water, and uh, I I think that when we look at it, we just take it at face value. God did what he did. He said what he did. This is what he said he did. When you look at the ark details, and I want to look at a few of them as we uh, move through this, there were three decks each 15 feet high. Uh, To give you an idea of 15 feet, it's actually about two feet underneath that soffit that's over my head. Uh, So you could get things like elephants and giraffes and those types of things in some of those decks. We also are not told that each one of them was exactly the same. So God being God, I'm pretty sure he probably had one of them that was a little larger than the rest, uh, and maybe a couple of them that were slightly smaller and broken up into smaller spaces for smaller animals. You know, God's not a dummy. It isn't like he would have just, you know, okay, I want you to make absolutely every single room exactly the same size. It's kind of like if you've ever done a garage organizer, The one thing you don't want to do is make every single cubicle exactly the same size because then you find out that your shop vac doesn't fit in those little holes that you made for all the little boxes that say DeWalt on them. You know, they fit nice in that little tiny space, but your shop vac doesn't. So uh, I think it's pretty safe to say that God would have transmitted the information uh, to Noah to make the diversity uh, that, that was necessary. It's also interesting, the species of wood, because gopher wood... Uh, is really a, a type of modern-day cypress that wood is still found in throughout Greece, throughout Turkey. Um, it's extremely durable, and in fact, the very first doors that were put on St. Peter's Cathedral uh, in Rome lasted over a thousand years. That were made out of gopher wood, out of cypress, and so it's an extremely durable. It's a highly dense wood. It grows very, very slowly. And so it also contained a tremendous amount of pitch. It was impregnated with it. And so it would have been fire-resistant, would have been water-resistant. It would have been perfect for the task at hand. And so, you know, we look around and go, well, it's kind of twisted and it doesn't grow straight. Well, again, you have to remember that that's a function of environment. And so the reason that trees are twisted, their limbs are shorter, if you have a hostile environment with high wind, uh, the limbs have a tendency to go sideways, they grow more out than they grow up that day and time. Remember that uh, the economy of scale of the, the atmosphere was a much denser, much wetter atmosphere. There were not storms. It matter of fact, it had never rained and so trees would have grown much straighter, much taller, and they would have grown for a very long time because they didn't have things like pests. Uh, there weren't people running around cutting them all down. And so it's entirely possible that the, the cypress that we would find tough to, to uh, dig up on the face of the earth today in large quantity was readily available to Noah. And so be careful about uniformitarian thinking with things that were before the flood and things compared to after the flood because they are not one and the same and your Bible tells us so. It says that all things continued as they were until the flood of Noah. And then from after the flood of Noah, we can look at the world that we live in. And most of those processes have been the way they are uh, since that time. It's also interesting that biblical coffins uh, were made. If they were not made out of stone, they were made out of gopher wood. Again, uh, very, very durable. Uh, the word that's used here for pitch is the Hebrew word kopher, uh, And it has another word. Far and it is only used in a very small, narrow window in language, and it means to cover. So this is the first use of the exact same word from which we get atonement. So here is this giant box that is meant to save the animals and the righteous human beings, It is made out of something very durable that is wood and it is going to be covered with an atonement so it keeps the storm out. So you can begin to kind of pick up on some of the spiritual analogy that you can get from this and uh, the way that we would look at it in a figurative way. So in essence, this atonement, this covering that's over the ark was to keep the waters of God's judgment because that's what he's doing. He's going to judge the world, amen? So as we start to look at the figurative meaning of this, there, there was a number of things that were that were in this. There was only one door. And that door was in the side. And there was only one window. And that window was in the top. And so as you start looking at what the ark was for, it was for salvation that it had a covering or an atonement, there was only one way in, and God controlled that door, and there was only one window, and it only looked one way, and that was towards heaven. You can kind of see that God's trying to speak to us through the figurative as well as the actual ship itself. God is making this thing so that when we think about it, we begin to look, how wonderful is this picture? How beautiful is it? How many doors are there into salvation? Just one. Amen? So we'll pick up now the figurative meaning in this passage, and it, for most of us tonight, is, is the important part of this. I believe that the ark is real, Uh, Whether it's going to be uncovered under the ice cap on Mount Ararat or not remains to be seen. That would be a pretty awesome artifact if we ever do find it. Uh, Whether it's there or not. Somebody asked me, and I get asked this all the time. Why didn't God preserve, and then they usually name things like the cross, Jesus' tomb, you know, the the exact spot. How come, you know, they didn't build a big monument when Jesus was crucified and mark that spot. And I actually think the answer is fairly simple. Because we as human beings have a tendency to begin to worship places and things. And and so if God had allowed all these things, you you would have, as you have today, uh, if you go to the Church of the Agony in Jerusalem, uh, there is a stone there that is said to be where Jesus wept. And, And you have to get in line to go weep on that rock and And you will be there a very long time uh you, you and there's there's just little spots to where you can you know actually get up on it and there are people laying on it and prostrating themselves and crying out and and the only problem is is that that particular rock is actually on the wrong side of the temple mount and, and so it, there's no possible way that that is the rock on. It, it, the garden. We don't even know if the Garden of Gethsemane is actually in the, the location that the Garden of Gethsemane is today. Those things may have been preserved. Uh, Constantine's mother, Helena, is very fond of building Catholic churches, in essence, what would become Catholic churches over those sites. And so some of them are real. But I think a lot of these things God just simply did away with so that we don't sit around worshiping hunks of wood. Uh, we don't sit around worshiping rocks. That we're not looking for you know, the exact place because the exact place is not important in that sense. What is important is that Jesus is the rock. What is important is Jesus is the door. What is important is, is there is only one way that man can come to God. What is important is that you are saved. You're found inside of the atonement. Those things are deathly important eternally to us. And so... I think God has actually purposely allowed most of these things uh, to either not exist or at least not yet uh, have been found. And so the figurative, of course the ark is a foreshadowing, it's a type, it's a picture if you want to use those words uh, of the Lord Jesus himself or the ark of our salvation. Uh, You can look at it, if you're here tonight, you're in Christ Jesus, you are in him complete, right? Right? So if you're in Christ, you are a new creation. Behold, the old things, the stuff outside in the storm, have passed away, and you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. So you can see how the ark is a picture or a type of the Lord Jesus himself. You can also see that this ark was no mistake. One of the problems that we have in in reconciling God's sovereignty in our choices is, is who started the whole process. It's real simple. God started the process of building this ark. He's the one that gave instruction to Noah. He's the one that saw the problem. He's the one that gave the plan. He's the one that said, build it this way, build it this size. It started with God. Salvation begins with God. Salvation does not begin with man. It begins with God. God came looking for us. We responded to that because we recognized our sin, but salvation begins with God. So the ark was God's idea. Noah didn't just sit in his yard one day, you know, it was you like sitting in his lounge chair roasting some you know steaks on his barbecue or something and go, You know what? I just need, need to build a boat. I just was thinking about it. It's like, man, what happens if it rains? there's no way in the world that Noah would have come, concocted a plan on his own in a place where there had not been any sea yet, there was no rain yet and and he's just like, man, I just kind of got a burning desire to build a boat. No, God gave him that plan. So what we see is the plan of salvation, the plan to rescue the righteous, the plan to Remember, he was saved by grace. We saw that last week, right? We saw grace through faith come to Noah. The plan was to cover him. And so he, he gives us an incredible picture of, look, I'm going to take the initiative to save you. But it's going to take your obedience. It's going to take your choice. It's going to take your faith. Noah, you're going to have to trust me. Because you're going to have to get inside that boat you're going to have to take the time to build that boat. You're going to have to be obedient to my call, and you are going to have to listen to what I say, and and if you do and get inside, you're going to be safe. But if you don't, you're going to die with everybody else. So again, it's a picture of how God is dealing with us still. It's how God is still at work in our lives. We have to also remember that relative to his generation, God saw something in Noah that was different than the rest of the world, didn't he? He was righteous in his generation. Now notice I didn't say he was perfect. He was righteous in his generation. There was something different about Noah. And the same picture is available in David's life. Amen? Anybody in here that thinks that David was perfect and that's why God saved him, uh, we need to talk. David was not perfect. David was perfected. Eventually he came to faith. Eventually by grace he was saved. Eventually when Jesus said to tell us die, he headed off to heaven. But he was saved by his faith. He trusted God even when he was a sinner. That's the picture of Noah. Noah was kind of a mess. No, Noah wasn't perfect, but Noah trusted God. I praise God for that example. Is there anybody perfect in here? Because <laughs> there isn't one up here, and there's only one of me, so I'm telling you I'm not. No, we're not perfect. That's why it takes grace. That's why it takes faith. It takes us believing that God has a plan, that God actually is coming after us. But relative to his generation, Noah was a righteous man. In fact, that passage that we looked at a couple of weeks ago in Second uh, Peter 2, it says there in verse 5, for God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. In other words, he, he looked at this heart that Noah had, e- even though he wasn't perfect, he sought the righteousness of God. And so again, it's a picture of faith, it's a picture of grace, It's a picture that God chose Noah and Noah chose God. Those two things have to happen. God can do all kinds of choosing from his side and you can say, I don't want it. And you can do all kinds of choosing, but if God doesn't have a plan to save you, you're not going to get where you need to go. So God's plan, your choice, your salvation is based on both things happening. It's not a work by you. It is grace on God's part. But that same God that Ephesians 2 said, Who is rich in mercy. Anybody love that passage? But God who is rich in mercy because of His great love wherein He loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, in our trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. You can almost see the ark. Start thinking about that passage now and imagine Noah building this humongous ship in his front yard, this box. And then think of Ephesians chapter two verses four and seven. Or or, yeah, four through seven. Has raised us up with him, seated in in the heavenly places, that in the ages to come he might show us the surpassing riches of his grace. You, You see that's a that's a picture of the ark. That's exactly what happened to Noah. Noah was a sinner. And he met a Savior. And when he was found in Christ, in a figurative sense, he was safe. He was preserved. And so this whole picture is Jesus being that ark that is our safety from the penalty of our failure, our sin. You see, Noah was a sinner also. He found grace in God's sight, and he cries out to God. He's obedient. When the world was upside down, was the world upside down in Noah's time? It absolutely was. God says it was completely evil. It was going the wrong way. The world was upside down. But Noah was able to walk right side up in an upside down world. That's what grace does. Grace enables us to walk right side up in an upside down world. It's our safety net. So Jesus is these things. Notice the similarities here. Was there another ark? Were there like a fleet of arks? Were there competing arks? You know, was Bob down the street, did he have a nicer ark with air conditioning? Was there an easier ark? Was there a free ark? <laughs> yeah, this ark was free. Anybody who wanted to get in could get in. But there was only one. There was exactly one ark. There was one means of escape. It's this beautiful picture of John fourteen six. I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. It's a picture of the ark of Noah. There's only one way, the ark. There's only one truth. It is only inside the ark that you will be saved. There's only one way. You've got to go through the one door, and God controlled the door. Isn't that crazy? Because only those that came to Noah could get in. There were lots of people on the earth. God had to speak to them by the Holy Spirit to send them there so that they could get in the ark. That's the Holy Spirit drawing men into salvation. It's this beautiful picture uh, of New Testament things in the sixth chapter of Genesis. By the time we get to to John chapter 10... This analogy of the door gets stressed even more. Jesus is actually going to tell us, point blank, I am the door. And he who enters in through me will be saved. And he will go in and go out and find pasture. In other words, when God's controlling the one door, it's the only door that you can go in, but if you go in, you got God and God's got you. It's Noah's Ark. It's the exact picture. The righteous man that was inside the ship, we find everyone coming to Noah. Noah was not going out and finding everyone else. They came to him. It's a picture of the Holy Spirit at work in your life, my life why the apostle Peter could say there is salvation in no one else there's no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved there is one door in the side of the ark there was atonement there was a covering over the ark if you were inside of it you were safe if you were outside of it you were dead that's why Peter could say there's no other name there's no other door there's no other way That's why the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ is so offensive. That's why people hate it. When you talk to people who believe in some other way of salvation, this is why they hate biblical Christianity. This is the reason. Because narrow is the way that leads unto salvation. Unto righteousness. And few there are who find it. How many are going to be inside the ark? Eight. That's few out of all the people of the world. Now I'm not saying that that's all there are that are saved today and praise God grace is crying out and there are millions maybe a couple of billion people on the face of the earth that have found Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But there's still only one way. There's still only one ark. You see Noah's family got inside the ark and they were perfectly safe. Again John 10 says this, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I will give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand and I and the father are one. That's the ark. The one way, once you're inside, you're safe. You're perfectly safe. Protected from the wrath of God. And you see, when you say you're saved, that's what you're saved from. If you want a technical definition, when you say you are saved, what you are saved from, because salvation implies that there's something that you're saved from, right? You're saved from God's wrath, which rightly you should have. God has perfect justice at his disposal and he uses it, dispenses it perfectly. So we should experience the wrath of God, but we are saved from it because we're found inside the ark. Jesus. That's the glory of this passage. You can see God laying out and he's going to next, and this is again the beautiful part of this particular chapter, he's going to next make a covenant a two-party agreement with Noah. And then he's going to describe this covenant and all the benefits of it. And I love this. He's, He's going to say, Noah, here's what I'm going to do for you, and this is what I want from you. And the glorious thing that he wants from Noah is one simple thing. It's obedience. Just do what I say. You ever wondered why Jesus said you are my disciples indeed if you keep my commandments? It doesn't mean you're saved by them. It means the fruit of you being inside the ark is that you keep the commandments of God. The fruit of your life becomes a representation of who you are as a new creation in Christ Jesus. You have a heart to do God's things God's way. You look at the world differently. You see and this is why it's important that the window was in the ark because they could look up and they could see God but they could not see the world there was only one door you know sometimes in our our little you know our Bible study classes for children's ministry we kind of picture all the animals up on the roof and you know Noah's walking around and doing all kinds of cool stuff but the bottom line is that from what we know from the Bible they could only look up That's the only place they could look was up. They couldn't look out. In other words, they could not see the destruction. They could not see the pain. They could not see the wrath of God. They could only see the glory of God. That's what God wants for you. He wants you to see his glory. He wants you to see his face. He wants you to walk with him. He wants you to hear his voice. You must be able to talk to you. to so that window where Noah and his family, the animals, were all perfectly safe, they could look up and see God. And I pray we look up and see God, knowing that we're protected from the wrath, the coffer, the covering, the atoning. We now know what that atoning is for us today. It's the blood of Jesus Christ, amen? Cleanses us from all unrighteousness. You see, that's why our sins are atoned for. That's why they're covered, paid for by his precious blood. That's why the Apostle Paul, Peter, gave this incredible picture. We've not been redeemed with the blood of bulls and goats, but with the precious blood of the Lamb. Now you know why John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who atones for the sin of the world, who covers the sins of the world. The chastisement of our peace was put you, you get the picture? You see what Genesis six begins is completed in the Gospels. When Jesus cries out to tell us die, it's the ark completed. Covered atoned for. Righteousness transmitted to you, given to you as a gift. Protected from the wrath of God. We get to chapter 7. Once the door was shut, it was shut. Now this is an important thing. God is long-suffering, but He does not suffer indefinitely. He's going to have a day when the door is going to be closed in every last person's life. Good news is the door is still open tonight. The bad news is it may not always be open for the rest of your days. So if you're here tonight and you've never chosen to get inside the ark with Jesus, you want to make that choice tonight. Because there's only one door and it's Him. There's only one way, it's Him. There's only one truth, it's Him. There's only one life, it's Him. And if you're not found in Him, there isn't salvation in any other. There's no salvation in works. There's no protection in doing something for God. God loves it when we do things with the right heart for Him, but it can't save us. Only being in the ark. Jesus can save. Amen. Would you stand? Let's pray together. Gonna to bring the pastors up. maybe you're here tonight and you said, Pastor Jeff, you know, I've never I've never asked Jesus to cover my sin. I've never asked him to be my Savior and Lord. I want to challenge you. Do not leave this building. Without going into the ark. Without entering in. By grace through faith. He says. That he is willing. To save any who will ask. To all, all who call upon the name of the Lord. They shall be saved and I praise God for that because when I called out to Jesus I was absolutely not worthy to be saved I'm still not worthy to be saved but he saved me anyway because I cried out to him and then he started to change me and mold me and shape me into the image of Jesus and so if that's you tonight as the pastors come forward you want to pray and invite Jesus into your heart I want to encourage you to do that. Just ask them. Just tell one of these pastors you want to pray to receive Christ tonight. And they'll lead you in a simple prayer. For the rest of us, oh, praise God that we are safe in the ark who is Jesus. Amen? Amen? Amen. Amen. And here's the beauty of it. No matter what the storm does, you're safe. No matter how the wind howls, you're safe. No matter how vicious it gets in the world, you're safe. No matter what happens, you're safe. And He's going to get you home. Because He's promised it. So rest in it. Trust in it. Rejoice in it. If You're here tonight. You're saved. You're inside the ark that is Jesus. Yeah, and you should be the happiest person on the planet Earth because Scripture says, though you will die, yet shall you live. You're going to get all the way home, all the way home to heaven. And that's a glorious thing to wait for. In the meantime, we're safe in Him. Father, thank you. Thank you for the promise of the ark that is our Jesus. We bless your name, Lord Jesus. Thank you for dying for us on Calvary's cross. Thank you that we are not redeemed with the blood of bulls and goats, but with the precious blood as of the Lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. We, we praise you that you gave yourself for us, redeem us from every lawless deed to purify for yourself a people, your own possession. As Paul reminded Titus, zealous for good works. Lord, we thank you that we walk in the light as you were in the light. We have fellowship with one another because the blood of Christ has cleansed us from all sin. We thank you for these promises, Lord, that you would save us as mind boggling. We ask that you would bless us and anoint us and use us, Lord, for your glory. And I pray tonight, if there's anyone here, that they would come from their seats. Come up here and invite you, Jesus, into their life so that they could be safe in the ark too. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.